The views that I express on this podcast are mine, and the same for our co-host Juan Pablo. Well, they're his. Listening to Panoptic, relating theories of communication, power, and technology to practical institutional issues and everyday life. Welcome to the podcast. It's actually we were just having an interesting conversation, and we we're just we decided to turn on the mics and continue yep. the conversation live. Let's do it. So, I mean, you're tuning in right now. This is going to be one of our reflections uh, reflections pieces where we talk about certain things that are on our mind we react to recent headlines uh we've done movies in the past and this is just kind of a way for us to be a little bit more timely with our uh content because often you know i realized that Juan, i was listening to our last episode and uh <laughs> we were talking about how we were going to ruin everyone's thanksgiving holiday and it's with like all this political christmas speak. <laughs> yeah but we actually didn't even release it until uh yeah. last week yeah, so, there was a big no. lag, and people were probably like tuning in, like, "What? Yeah. Thanksgiving was like two months ago. What are these people talking yeah. about?" But th- that's so we have a, a regular cadence of kind of well thought out content, and then we can kind of fill the gaps with these more reactionary pieces, where we can be a little bit more laid back and more not reactive pieces. Y- yeah. Yeah. So um, why don't we? Uh, you know, today we're going to talk about a bunch of different things. We can. I mean, we certainly we wanted to react to the Democratic debates, some things that are happening with Iran. I mean, a lot of things have already happened this year mm-hmm. that have it's been a, you know, already a pretty crazy year. Yeah. So why not um, spend uh, 45 minutes talking about some of these things and try to tie it back to the core themes of Panoptic and some of our previous conversations? Yeah. Well, I mean, do you want to start with the... Tonight's a debate, a Democratic debate, uh, presidential debate uh, in Iowa. Yeah, and let's get back to what you were saying before earlier, because that was interesting. Well, you were saying, Jason, that you were interested in, you know, can you repeat that? Yeah, so we were talking about, you know, Juan and I have for years tried to think about ways that we could kind of do what we're doing on the podcast but in and um you know turn it into a kind of a non-profit model or a business model and offer some kind of package to organizations to help them in some kinds of ways so i've been thinking about you know i work in this change management space and i work in a lot of uh, technology transformations especially um, automations advanced analytics things that can increase efficiency and basically reduce the 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 need for labor Um, those have social costs social externalities that's going to become more and more of a problem i think in the future so i was saying to you Juan that I wonder if we could create a process and a tool of going into an organization auditing their technologies and coming up with uh, ratings to determine what are these social externalities and how might this organization improve their ratings you know if we come out and it's like well there's um, you know high risk associated with this 
technology because you're going to put 60% of your organization out of work. And maybe that's what they need to do to survive. You know, we're still thinking about this from a capitalistic mindset. Uh, maybe there is something they can do to upskill, reskill their the employees that they're letting go or help them in some way. Um, train them for other kinds of positions where they they will be able to flourish. So uh, still very early um, design phase, thinking about how we might be able to do this, but still kind of in the same tradition of how do we make the markets work a little bit better for us? How do we get organizations that are trying to survive, trying to grow in the kind of classical economics mindset while doing right by public stakeholders? And reducing social neg- negative social externalities. Yeah, I mean, to that I would say, you know, as I was starting to tell you, my interest would be a little less focused on things like a firm, and on uh, I would I I like I told you in a previous episode, you know, I really think now is the time for those of us who can to draw upon an interdisciplinary frame of reference that crosses between the humanities, the social sciences, and maybe even the sciences to start rethinking from the ground up every element of our institutions and systems of uh, those systems through which we frame interaction, social interaction, uh, the distribution of goods and services, governance, even politics. And so to me, I think, I think, uh, of course there are people doing this at universities, um, but the academics is so detached from the world of, let's say, policy, where occasionally people will move across from one to the other, it seems like to me. But, I mean, if we're looking at who are the people that are parts of these campaigns, right? Um, who are the people that are political operatives? Um, who are the lifelong bureaucrats in, diff- in the different administrative branches of governance? If, let's say, let's say one of these Democratic candidates wins the presidency, who are the people that go to Washington to pre- create policy, to implement new policies, Let's say something. Let's say if Bernie Sanders wins, and something like the Green New Deal, you're going to have a cross section of people. Some of them with ties to academia, some of them with ties to, uh, let's say, NGOs. Some of them with ties to uh, social movements and grassroots organizations, but not enough, it seems to me, with ties to academia. And I feel like. If we, if academia wants to remain, or academics wants to remain, or this knowledge production, these knowledge production houses that we have uh, want to remain relevant, uh, specifically in the social sciences and humanities, one way that's perhaps a little bit beyond the usual scholars' task, traditional task, will be to start drawing upon the best of our knowledge and traditions and our concepts and our and our framework for understanding reality to maybe helping rethink those, uh, our, again, our whole institutional framework from the ground up. And I think that's the kind of thing uh, that, you know, I don't know. I feel like that's, that's the kind of thing that 
people with my skill set and your skill set who try who are interested in things like philosophy, social theory, history, uh, communications theory, and that and that can draw upon to have to in a, in a way uh, help frame those uh, that process of, of of you know rebuilding or or redesigning our, our institutional world. Uh, and I think that's the kind of thing that would have perhaps a lot of import, you know, at, as in or outside of, of government or or some kind of private framework. So basically the, 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 the client here would be agents of change, yeah. and we would want to increase academia's influence on them. Yeah, to I mean, inform this is, them so they will um, yes. enact certain kinds of policies or uh, stand yeah. up certain kinds of organizations in new, maybe innovative ways. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the people who I'm not sure the people who have drafted the Green New Deal, for instance, uh, are a mix of a mix of I think activists, politicians, and academics. Right, some of them are, for instance, tied. I know, I know one particular person um, who is. Uh, let's see what he is. I'm gonna, I'm gonna Google him right now. He's a PhD. I'm sorry. He's at the Department of. He's a sociology professor, of sociology at. Um, University of Pennsylvania, where he directs the Social Spatial Climate Collaborative. Uh, his name is Aldena Cohen, and he's also a member of the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. So here's someone who you know, and he's and he just came out with a book on the Green New Deal, Planet to Win. And here's someone who's been probably been working to craft this this policy, and it's a central pillar of Bernie Sanders' policy. And of course, we're not we're not going to hear it talked about in detail in, in debates because that's not how debates work. But these are the kind of crafters of the ideas of how we're going to reconfigure industrial policy in, in the near future. And I think this is this could this is being done in universities probably by people like him. But I don't see any reason why it could be done at a broader level to let's say help help uh, rethink uh, the the world of work, uh, help communities uh, adjust or rethink the way that they do. Uh, governance and and among again and the idea would be here to be drawing on this language on social theory political theory um history to be able to give uh people who are policy makers a set of new frameworks for thinking about what they do and the f and how and how they can create more democratic robust uh frameworks of governance and 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 of markets and things like that, or even you know frameworks of new frameworks beyond the market uh, in certain areas of life, or for organizing, let's say, the production of things like uh, housing or transportation or whatever, or organize or the way that cities are governed, the way that the infrastructure is produced and maintained, and so forth. Especially, and I think this, you know. In a minute, we'll be talking about what's going on in Australia, but I think we can't disconnect what's going on in Australia with our specific the the way we have the way we are the very unsustainable way in which we are producing, distributing things in the world, and consuming things in the world. Um, 
but more on that in a little bit i guess yeah i think so, it's a very uh, interesting idea it's I'll, I'll say it sounds almost like a think tank yeah and i think um <laughs> right it would be a kind of nonprofit, and the issue there is we'd need to find financiers who are interested in the cause. And a lot of these groups spend 50%, 60% of their time looking for that money just hmm. so they can operate. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know anything about that world, honestly, but that'd be interested. That'd be the kind of thing that um, that would interest me, me in the future, you know, outside of academia, perhaps, if, it has, if that's a yeah. possibility to organize something like that. Whereas if you create a, a process and some kind of tool that can... Um, you know, if you, if you think back to how do we make technology more ethical, and that's kind of a, a loaded question, but I think an idea like that can be tied back to the bottom line of an organization. If you can package into something that you're selling that, hey, look, we have invested you know, thousands, tens of thousands, millions of dollars in improving our... Um, technology ethics ratings because we're thinking we're we're a futuristic company we think about the fourth industrial revolution this is a concern to our stakeholders so you know very strategic very um kind of uh polished and uh veneer smiling cigar chomping whatever but you could also see how you get organizations to invest in actions like this you can see incremental positive change that actually do benefit public stakeholders environmental stakeholders so um i like i like both <laughs> ideas i think one one is more of a, a profit model and the other is more of a um a think tank kind of operation yeah no. yeah well let's let's come back to that i mean i think that's an ongoing conversation i think I, there are certain things i would there are certain uh what do i what i want to call them i guess there are certain things that i would be about the model you're proposing, there are certain things that I would be skeptical about. Uh, the, about oh, the me limits, too. The limits of it, given... So, you know, here here's where the question arises of, if we think of... If we think of markets as, as bounded by the law, by norms, right? By regu by As markets as being regulated. Um, and that regulation is, in a sense, binding what those actors do but thinking of firms capitalist firms as having a certain logic at the end of the day um to one extent or another and i know there's a range there because you can have anything from you could call i guess you could call the mom and pop shop on the street corner on the corner that sells you know that just has like a restaurant or whatever a capitalist firm but it has a specific way of thinking it's not trying to expand you know it's, it's just a it's just a mama pop shop where they just live off of it the difference between that and a corporation that is accountable to investors or you know where it's no longer a, a family size affair where it works on its own accord it's the logic is one of growth perpetual growth and expansion this is the logic of this is the logic of, of, of competitive markets because if the firm remain, if the firm does not adjust constantly in order to be expanding itself, um, and therefore looking for new markers, looking for innovations, looking for ways to make its its production processes more efficient, productive, um, and so forth, it will eventually lose out to a competition of some sort. Therefore, the the firm seeks naturally 
to grow, to look for new markets, to, to innovate. This is part of the dy dynamism of the, of the market as such. But it also means that I think there's, only, there's a limit of how much we can expect the firm to be a moral actor because the firm at the end of the day is not a human being who thinks about things in a moral perspective or an ethical framework. Um, some specific leadership could be, you know, uniquely ethically oriented, but there's always a limit of how many, how, how much those morals and ethics can go if the law doesn't stop something from being done, right? If the law doesn't say you can't, you can't, if the law doesn't say you don't have to, you know, you can't pollute rivers, there's nothing to stop a, a firm from polluting rivers if it's going to save the bottom line, um, unless a specifically ethical, unless a uniquely ethical leadership is at the helm. But or really, un un say, unless the unless hold on, unless the incentives are changed, so I, I I just want to plant a flag there that the the business itself, of course, is not a moral actor. It's going to act, you know, to increase the bottom line. But if the incentives are realigned, and that can be very difficult to do, I'm not saying that's easy to do. Mm -hmm. But if you if you say, well, if you want to increase your bottom line, if you want to grow, then actually you have to care about what you're you know, spilling into the nearby, um, uh, aquifer or I mean, you do, have you? To, yep. do you, do you, to what extent do you have to, right? You um, have just to, because it's bad PR are, are, are built that way. Well, well just so because there, there could be reputational costs against the law that, well, you could have legal incentives. You can have penalties. You can have like a carbon tax. There are issues with that. You can have, um, political risks, Right, and, but these uh, are all external to the f for what can be done within the firm. Do you see what I'm getting at? Is these motivations or these ways of controlling what the firm does are all come from without, not from within. They're not the. I, I, what I, 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 what I, I'm I trying is there's a limit to what you could do to get the firm from within to change its to adapt its logic uh, to a more ethical framework if it doesn't have to. Right. Well, uh, so what I, I'm not advocating, I don't think you can change the logic, but you can change the incentives. So the logic ends at acting better than they would otherwise. But how do you change those, those incentives? I mean, you're talking about legal penalties, yeah. political Correct. penalties. You're talking about P things that come from or, come or from through pressure from stakeholders and, and shareholders in some cases. Mm, but to what extent are stakeholders and shareholders... Well, sure. Who are interested in profit right? at the end of the day? Um, and to me, this well, is a really interesting question. But I think you're not. I think there's one thing that's missing from our discussion: is how do you how do you how do you tie firms to constitute stakeholders who are real stakeholders of what the firm does, but not necessarily owners of the firm, right? So let's say you know you have a firm that regulates the water system for flint michigan right how do you get that company to really care about its stakeholders well think about how do you, how do you give those stakeholders and some... how do you how do you recruit and retain a very high quality workforce it's by treating your employees the best you know take a company like salesforce for example who has recognized the concerns about automation and they're investing millions of dollars in retraining people with lesser skills for, you know, software skills, things that will be valuable in the future. And that's something that a lot of their competitors aren't doing. So it actually gives them a competitive edge in the market because they get a monopoly 
on the best employees. So they can actually grow the business. They have higher performers. They have more loyal people who stick around. So when you uh, say stakeholders, you just do you just mean their employees? Well, in this case, it would be the employees. An employee is a stakeholder, just like uh, you know, in, in a broader sense, a taxpayer is a, is a stakeholder to any government operation. Or, but why should a, so why should a company care outside of its immediate stakeholders? Let's say about what it actually about the effects of what it actually does. What if it's pollution of the river doesn't in any way affect its employees, its stock owners? And so forth, but it's good for the bottom line. And meanwhile, they're treating their employees wonderfully. Do you well, see we, what I I'm mean, saying? Have, There's, but the, we have countless examples of reputational crises destroying companies. And you know, it takes a lot sometimes to get to find yourself in a situation I mean, like that. Think about Exxon. How many times has Exxon spilled BP? I mean, these are gigantic corporations that have absolutely well, that's part destroyed of the issue. They're so gigantic, and they that, haven't faced absolutely any. So what I'm saying is, there's perhaps this. Perhaps there are different firms that do different things where internally one can somehow up, set up frameworks that can change incentives. But to what extent, I don't think the capitalist firm is built in a way that it can ever be, a, its incentive can be ultimately moral. Its incentives are almost always going to be about the bottom line. And I just don't see around that problem. Do you, unless... Unless, and this is, and unless, but maybe this is somewhere where I would get a little closer to you, unless we can rethink the firm as somehow being, being really, uh, uh, being really having some sort of, uh, having to somehow account for their stakeholders and thinking of stakeholders mm-hmm. beyond just employees or, or stock owners, but the people that it's consumers. Um, well, consumers and, are employees, right? Well, not necessarily. I mean, I'm not an employee of BP or Exxon, or but I am a consumer. Not of, of their, BP, but of, product. of someone of the Stanford, right? Yeah, or but of, I am a know, consumer of, of 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 Exxon's and BP's products when I have to be to to get around in my in my car. But I they have no they have no uh, accountability to me, right? They can just you know they they can if they if they're if they spell. In oil and destroy an ecosystem in the Gulf Coast or in Alaska, like there's, they're only accountable at the end of the day to 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 the political to the to the body politic if it decides to hold them accountable. You, you're you're completely right, and there are serious limitations here. But my argument is is not that the logic is moral <laughs> of the firm. It's more that you can, as an outsider, there are mm-hmm. things you can do to influence the behavior of a firm that will result in better outcomes for society. It has nothing to do with ethics, even if we brand yeah. it as ethics. Okay. Yeah. Again, I'd be curious to see. I'd be curious to hear more concrete ways ways in which that can be the case. Yeah, because well, I, should, I understand. We should come up with with better. Yeah. Let's do that. As an I episode. can understand yeah. how you for you might make the case that if we you change internal the internal. Uh, in the, the internal sort of culture of firms so they treat their employees better that that's obviously a good thing uh but then how temporary is that right like all you need is for i mean we, we've seen it where we used to work right all you need is a all you need is one of these companies that buys up companies for a living and sells them to for profit to come in and say well that's really nice we're going to yeah. change everything and all we care about our numbers and the bottom line because we see everything as 
cost benefit analysis. Awful. You know, and you know, it right. seems like, you know, we talk to, you know, talk to any person on the street and, 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 you know, ask them, do you love your job? A lot of them are going to say, no, I hate it. So, yeah. um, you know, there, there's probably significant limitations to what you as an organization can do to truly like make your employees happy. And I don't know if their, um, you know, employees have some responsibility in the matter as well. There are certainly cases where an employee isn't happy because the employee doesn't want to be happy. And in fact, maybe compared to what the rest of, of, of the world is getting, they actually have it pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. There, there are significant limitations here. Um, some stakeholders are going to have more influence than others, like employees, especially like shareholders or in like a nonprofit context. The people who fund them are going to have yeah. significant influence of what which projects the organization takes on and, and, and talks about. Yeah. So, um, but I'm afraid even outside of kind of, you know, if you move into that nonprofit world, you're going to have influences like that as well yeah so for sure. it's, um, yeah. um so well they're they're always they're always special interests and powers kind of yeah, operating for in sure. the background i mean the 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 i guess the insight of of our our, our sort of tradition of liberal tradition right is power needs to be divided right powers must be divided uh, I actually think, you know, I actually think, and I know this is going to sound kind of crazy, but I really think that if we reconfigured certain markets in, certain, in different ways, we could give rise to a new kind of firm that would be something like a hybrid between the modern day corporation and the old medieval guild, uh, but more <laughs> democratic than either one. Where workers, where people would all have ownership in the in the corporation, not be oriented primarily towards profit, but but not also be part of a system of centralized state planning, not be state firms, right? This wouldn't be Soviet style cap you know, communism. This would be something where individual firms owned by private individuals but that are run and organized in a way that's not necessarily profit oriented where everybody has a stake in ownership and they use the highest technologies and new and different ways of, of logistic you know the highest levels of technology of and data for uh, distribution of goods and services to a consuming public to which they are uh, to which they are accountable be either by being part of the community or by being regionally based that would be a new framework for organizing a firm that would be like i don't know that would still in i don't know if it's i don't know if it remains capitalist at that point but i really think at some point this is going to be the kind of this is very speculative but i really think this is this is the model of the firm that one day we will be trying to build and it's going to really take that sort of uh hard thinking of innovation of thinking well how do we take the highest technologies of production and of analysis of information and put them together with our best traditions of of democratic thinking of separations of power and create some kind of decentralized form of production of firms that are not necessarily always oriented 
towards profit and that might be collaboratively owned where everybody has a stake in it and where people collaborate to build things that people actually need um and again not a state central planning system where some sort of agency says well we're going to build 500 cars and you know there's a huge bureaucratic and 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 there's a difficult there's an intertanglement of power and and things you know um of power, of political power, and, and 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 the process of production, so that it just becomes a bureaucratic mess, and inefficient, and and maybe even you know, and and there's all sort of these 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 horrible th- things that spin off of it, where people are um, basically what we saw in in in, in uh, the ex- the experience of of Eastern communism and stuff. So. Mm. So to me, that's where that's where I think when you get a diff, just like there was a transition from the guild system of producing things in the Middle Ages to the capitalist firm, um, sometime around that time of the Renaissance and then beyond. I think we are on the cusp because of what we're being forced to think about with climate change to thinking how do we reconfigure production and consumption models. What are the units going to be that produce and consume things? How do we do it in a way that's efficient and yet retains agency for the individual, but is also sustainable um, and more democratic? Because if you think about firms, they can be very undemocratic in many ways. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. This is all very speculative and utopian. Yeah, I was going to say it does sound a little utopian. It is totally. But very, I mean, yeah totally fascinating i think let's uh, <laughs> let's think on it Let, then let's again let's let's turn this into an episode unto itself because i think maybe if, if we do a little research and uh, yeah. come back to it with some more concrete ideas that being said you know i think you're onto something if you could somehow channel you know your skills and philosophy and ethics to come into a firm and change let's say at more at a more general level change the way that these these places think about relations and the way they manage but again i think the problem you run into and you could really change the way a firm operates and make it a better firm i think in many ways but at the end of the day you're faced with the problem that this this might be temporary right if ownership changes if uh leadership changes all that could be thrown out the window once the once the people who own the firm say well that was nice but there's we have like we're actually going to be just going back to the old way of doing business and we really care about the bottom line at the more than anything else. Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe there's a certain maybe there's a certain block for that at some point if you create a culture robust enough to block against that. With good change management, you you create changes that can be sustained and you create systems and you you know stand up cultures that can um, that are at least robust enough to maintain the change for at least a period of time. Yeah. The the hard part here is whatever change you I mean I mean usually as a change manager you are asked to help the organization make a change that has already been in some form predetermined or maybe they need help like realizing what is the change that they need but they have some idea of what it needs to be mm-hmm. so um, it's not necessarily me going to bp and being like hey what about this renewable energy stuff why don't we completely upend your uh, organization and do something different which yeah. w- would never happen in the history of ever <laughs> um, right. but um 
what we can do is if like the organization says we are having, you know, we're seeing a lot of resistance to implementing this new, I don't know, it could be an automation or a new financial system, or, you know, I'm just trying to think of like basic things that any like normal firm might be trying to implement. Uh And maybe like there's a lot of attachment to old ways of doing things. Uh, And it may turn out that the, you know, a lot of this resistance stems from a very, a very low functioning communication culture. Basically people aren't speaking. The different parts of the organization are siloed and the leaders don't communicate critical information down the chain of command. So you have like a very kind of like steep hierarchy. Uh, It's not a flat organization. There's very little communication. There's very little interest between the parts of learning about each other's um, goals and risks and those kinds of things. But so as a change manager, one thing you can do is try to, and I'm using this term with a grain of salt, but democratize the hierarchy a little bit, flatten it a little bit more. So people at the bottom feel like they have more voice in the decision-making process. So leaders are communicating like their vision and like the reasons behind decisions they make down the command chain more that you have increased knowledge sharing between the different parts of the organization. And simply by enacting these kinds of democratizing um, approaches, uh, you see that resistance to change lessen. And uh, at the very least, you create a, a, a uh, what's the a more constructive environment to work in, a more pleasant environment to work in for your employee stakeholders. No. So that's one. Um, and, and the reason why this works is there's a business case. I mean, they, they say, well, we have a, we've flattened the hierarchy a little bit. There's more communication. People like to work here a little bit more. Um, but also we've, now we can implement this change that is going to help us make more money. So the, the challenge here is whatever change we are trying to implement, there has to be a business case for it. So can we, you know, getting back to the argument we were having before, um, not, it's not, how do we make the logic of capitalism within the firm more ethical, but how do we improve the outcomes? We do that by, for whatever change we come across forever, whichever good outcomes we're pursuing, we also have to nest those outcomes in a business case. So there is money involved in, in realizing those outcomes. And that is a severe limitation. There is a lot that we cannot accomplish with this model, but there may be instances where we can make important changes, at least incremental changes. Yeah. And, and couple that with, with other external factors, policy, uh, other like kinds of political, uh, risks that may materialize depending on who you are, like what, which industry you're operating in. Those things can also have a very significant influence on which, you know, business decisions you're making, you know, all of a sudden something you're doing, you've been doing forever becomes a threat to the viability of your company. So you have to, you have to stop polluting the river that saved you a lot of money or you have to do whatever because um, now all of a sudden if you keep committing these acts then you are going to incur uh, you're going to lose one of your largest contracts for example <laughs> you, you and i can think back to probably some examples of working for a company that maybe uh, did not manage things and uh, didn't didn't have a, a strong risk outlook so you know very significant contracts were at risk 
And it's like, huh, maybe you should start thinking about your having a more long-term perspective on how you manage risk, you know, your quality control procedures so you can maintain your highest revenue generating contracts. All right. I don't know. I don't know how long we've been talking. Uh, we haven't just gotten about to... 30 minutes or so. Okay. Um, let's, let's move on to the democratic debates, which are going on right now. So we're missing them, but that's okay. Because I, 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 I forced you to miss this. And well, as I told you, I usually watch 20 minutes of the debate and then by the, about 20 minutes. And usually that's a, that's if they're going, that's a long time. Usually about 15 minutes in, I'm about ready to throw something at the television <laughs> and decide that it's not worth it to be upset. So I just turn it off and later I watch, we'll watch the highlights, which are usually just a good moment to laugh. Yeah. Um, I find the debates to be completely useless most of the time. You don't learn anything new about them. They're talking points. Nothing is ever substantially discussed. The public is treated like they're complete morons. Um, the questions are boring, catch, catch you questions. Uh, the journalists seem to be ill-prepared to discuss anything beyond you know sort of like talking points um so anyway as you see i'm very <laughs> i really enjoy them that's why i sit down and watch. what do you think jason about this upcoming de- this ongoing debate yeah i i didn't actually know before tonight that you did watch the debates i figured you wouldn't i i've been 10, pretty minutes good. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, i've been <laughs> good about watching them yeah i've been good about watching them and this week I kind of tuned out and I'm sure this says something about my character or my interests, but Andrew Yang didn't make it to the debates. And I was like, well, I've completely lost interest in <laughs> watching this now because to be perfectly honest, I, I liked to see what Andrew Yang had to say. <laughs> so with his 30 seconds of speaking time, <laughs> right. <laughs> he's usually just standing there yeah. in the corner and then raising his hand. Like, so <laughs> literally, Oh, you're here. Literally in one instance, like waving his hands, <laughs> trying right. to get a word in and yeah. the moderators completely ignoring him. Um, and that's been a trend with him with like MSNBC and CNN in some respects, like, posting the wrong photo of him like other random asian people who are not andrew yang who are obviously not andrew yang are you serious yes oh they're so they're so completely useless (laughs) they're Uh, so incompetent uh it's been very infuriating but like we were saying before i think um like you know yang is full of surprises and i really have enjoyed watching him come from you know basically having no political no public platform and really growing a lot and it's a really interesting case study of um, like influence and organizing and power how his message has been slowly resonating with more and more people regardless of what you think of the automation discourse (laughs) um, uh, which at the very least i think was a very smart political decision to kind of shift the narrative away from trade and focus on automation where a lot of people you know usually you need a, a person or a group of people to cast as the villain but yang has been able to get away from that and he's like no technology is the villain and uh that has resonated with people you know, people are seeing, they're walking into their stores and they're seeing less employees, more automated booths. They're, um, you have uh, Amazon fact, uh, warehouses going up all over the uh, United States that are wall-to-wall packed with robots. Uh, 
Um, so that at least viscerally resonates with people. And I think it, it's a very, uh, whether or not it's a, a completely accurate picture of what's happening. Uh, it's a very smart political strategic narrative that will pay dividends for him in the long run. Yeah. I, I think you're right to an extent, but I actually, you know, it seems to me, but if you look at the polls, at the top of the polls, you have Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, mm-hmm. right? Which tells you something. I mean, these are two candidates that are talking about systemic change, right? They're talking about reconfiguring, indus- you know, changing our industrial policy. And I think what resonates even more with people is is the fact that they think, they look, I mean, I really think people look at their everyday life they look at the fact that our healthcare system is a complete mess. They look at uh, the distribution of wealth uh, in the last 30, 40 years. They, they, they hear the fact that 10 people or whatever have more or as much wealth as, as 50% of the population. And they realize that some elements of policy that we've been told were good for everybody have not been good for everybody they've been good for a very small amount of people and it seems to me that it's pretty clear that the messages that are resonating are the messages however simple however simplistically stated however we might not like the way they're stated that are pointing to what i what i think are our systemic problems which is the way we have our industrial policy, we, I really think we, should, we need to think about this in terms of industrial policy. Um, an industrial policy which has been based on on, uh, on opening up markets uh, without thinking about the effects on, on a vast amount of the middle classes. And, and also, but I mean, I think we need to think about, think about things like, like medical care as industrial policy. Um, uh, student loans is industrial policy you know you do you decide you know if the first thing republican uh presidents are doing when they come into office is slashing taxes for a very small amount of people and these taxes make very rich people already 1.4 trillion dollars and then we see that on the back that that uh that uh college loan debt stands at 1.4 trillion dollars it's not hard for people to start thinking Oh, our industrial policy is to put the cost of things like education, which you have to get if you want any kind of meaningful job, on the backs of uh, the you know middle class, and to give money to very rich people. It's you know it's taxation, whether you want to think about it that way or not. It's industrial policy. It's we're putting we're making these people pay for for a for a public for a good like education, and we're giving money. To these people who already have a ton of it and i don't think people are and there's more to it than that but i think the general there's a lot more to it than that and i think but i think these i think these elements are way more visceral than automation to every day to the the history of the last 40 50 years of of uh of the kind of framework we've been given for economic policy in the united states and the effects that they've had especially I think people of our generation, Jason, are looking at the difference between our generation and previous generations and saying, well, at some point, certain policy decisions were made that have had massive material effects. 
and I just it, to me it just seems uh, this is this is this is a, this is the discourse that in very simplistic language uh, Bernie Sanders and, and Elizabeth Warren who I on, honestly I think are the only two serious candidates on the race I think Yang is interesting and he has some interesting proposals I think the only ones who are talking about stuff systemically uh, are, are are Warren and Sanders and the only ones who have like deep policy proposals for for deep change are people are these two people which i think is reflected in how where they are in the polls biden i mean i don't know what you think about biden but to me it just sounds like old old hat you know what i'm saying i'm like i'm not sure apart from old people i'm sorry sorry to use that term for whoever's listening to it apart from baby boomers or a certain <laughs> generation who really places an emphasis on an old form of doing politics which never really existed in the first place of a sort of like across the aisle like good you know we all work together to make things happen blah 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 uh, which i don't think really ever existed um there is or a certain statement statesman's like presentation of politics uh and therefore they'd like someone like joe biden there's no substance there i don't know what you think but to, i don't see any substance there and i don't just don't i feel that campaign is just going to go into the ground crashing into the ground it was already starting to crash into the ground i don't know we'll see see Next to Andrew Yang, I, Uncle Joe definitely has the solutions that this country needs. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe. I'm surprised that he's... Well, I, I'm surprised and not at all surprised that Biden has still maintained... I mean, in some in some polls, actually, Bernie is ahead of Biden at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't looked at... Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me. But um, Biden has still... You know, he has the most powerful platform. He's been around uh, in the public sphere, very, um, like, very salient uh, for the longest amount of time. So he has the strongest platform. So it's no surprise that he's yeah. where he is. But, you know, the the debates tend to have a... Well, so actually what, what I've learned is that many people don't really watch the debates, but they watch the media analyses after the debates. Yeah. So if the debates have any effect on the polls, uh, it it tends to have more to do with which media outlets people watch and which uh, analyses they consume, and that is kind of where. Oh, for um, sure. Yeah. You know, so that is yeah. another explanation as to because if you look at Biden's debate performance, it's been awful. He just he he can't do it, and th- that's bad because you know put him up against Trump. I don't know. I guess there's like the off chance that Biden's uh, inability to, I mean, he, he doesn't really have wit. He doesn't really have strong uh, logos. Like he's not going to make an in-depth argument. He, he definitely has the, um, well, he's, he's, you know, he's, he just kind of stumbles every time he's talking. Yeah. And it, uh, I feel, honestly, I feel bad watching this old man sort of like fall apart. It's hard to watch. It's hard <laughs> it's to watch. But, but the interesting thing is, yeah, the interesting thing is it doesn't affect the polls. Yeah. Um, well, I think, I mean, there's a strong constituency of people who are down the line, Democratic voters for a long time who think here's the, here's the old guard, civility, you know, all the stuff that they think he's going to bring back. Right. Yeah. Who but but to not think even about he, he has another advantage that when if you go and ask someone who is not politically involved on the street, who are you going to vote for? Well, who's running? 
this, you know, Warren, <laughs> Andrew, um, uh, Klobuchar, um, some guy named Pete, and uh, Joe Biden. <laughs> They're like, oh, Joe Biden. I know Joe Biden. Didn't he? He worked for Obama. So they're going to be like, okay, I'm going to vote yeah, for Joe. Right, right. And he has that massive advantage over the other political candidates. But here's uh, the difference. Who votes, right? And I've read several articles that talk about how Bernie Sanders has built upon his... So apparently Bernie Sanders ran in 2016 not expecting to win at all or even get close to it. He just wanted to drag the conversation. He wanted to basically push Hillary to the left, which he did, which he did to an extent, but he also got, got a lot closer to the nomination that he thought. And he's built upon that to create a very strong grassroots campaign. And what at the, the strategy apparently from the, Biden, from the Bernie Sanders camp is to create a constituency that does not exist. Young people, people of color who do not vote, get them out to vote. That's what's going to make the difference to them between, in their thinking, Basically creating, a, and apparently this this has to do with a, an analysis that they've made as well about a changing constellation of alignments. The Democratic Party, believe it or not, the Republican Party is interesting. It's the party of, to an extent, I'm trying to remember this off the cuff. I probably will get some things off wrong. So if I'm wrong about some of this, you know, I'll try to amend it later. But from from apparently what these parties have become, the Republican Party has become the party of a certain element of the white working class and a very rich white upper class. While the Democratic Party is the party of actually a certain very well-educated, also very wealthy upper class, there is a gap and, of course, a certain set of constituencies that are very much aligned with the Democratic Party, like African Americans. But there's a gap for a huge swath, for a huge swath of the population that are not aligned with either of these parties. Um, and there's apparently a realignment going on right now in American politics of the stature of the realignment that we haven't seen since the post-war era where tied to things like civil rights and other elements, basically, you know, there was a shift in the Democratic and the Republican Party and the kind of constituencies they had where a lot of Southern Democrats left for the Republican Party over race issues. Um, mm-hmm. we're, have, we're seeing apparently a similar change uh at a ground level that's massive and the bite and the and the bernie camp thinks that they can um they can given the message they're putting out there that they can take advantage of this to create a new constituency that's gonna that's what's gonna bring um, bring them the nomination and eventually the 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 election i don't know if that's true or not but this is you know and i would i would actually there there is data to back this up and uh so i'm sure they're newer let me see if i can find that the the name of the article Several months ago, there was a survey that found that the only two candidates who 10% or more of Republicans, Democratic candidates who 10% or more of Republicans would vote for, were Bernie Sanders and Andrew Yang. Hmm. And I think that's because they are speaking to this kind of white working class that is experiencing economic strife, that um, they believed Trump would... Um, do something about but they're not feeling that he is and they are jumping parties as a result well say that last part about why they're jumping parties well so they they feel that the uh economic problems that trump promised to Mm. correct have not been corrected yeah you get this like you know industrial policy focus in bernie sanders and kind of a ubi automation focus in andrew yang the Mm. both those things speak to 
the economic strife that is felt by some of these uh, previous Trump voters. Right. So, right. That, I mean, that might be one explanation why we're seeing some changes. Yeah, and we have to also, I think you're, that points to another thing, which is the American voting blocks or the American voting populace or the populace in general usually is very pragmatic if they vote at all, right? So I was, I think I saw in another article how the numbers for Pennsylvania for, for Hillary Clinton were horrible because a lot of the people who showed up to vote for, for Obama uh, in places like Phil- in the Philadelphia suburbs, for instance, just stayed home with Hillary Clinton. Yep. So she lost places that, be- not because, not, not just because of the massive voters that came out, key, key states that would have won the Electoral College, right? So what you have is, you know, you have a battle at key states where it's more, it goes beyond the sort of famed or like mythical white working class uh, and so forth. It goes to a whole set of constituencies of young people, students, people of color, and white working class, uh, and non-white working class who are motivated to go vote for one reason or another. Um, It seems like the Bernie camp is playing a ground game that's very much focused on signing people up to Canvas because they know that every person that they get to Canvas means 40 doors knocked, which means 40 people who might not have voted potentially showing up to vote. Um, they're playing a ground game, they're playing, they're using social media. I'm sure every campaign is, but they're doing it with a specific message, which I think resonates for a lot of people. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. But the surge in the polls lately, uh, I for one, because I think, again, that Sanders and, and, and uh, I mean, I put all my cards on the table. I think Sanders and, and Alyssa Warren are the only two serious candidates. They're the only ones thinking about things at a systemic dimension they're the only ones thinking about climate change and taking it seriously i i think i'm hopeful that they that this that this is actually more than just uh hope <laughs> and that there is actually a realignment going on in politics that's going to be really interesting but uh i anyway there, let's go back to the debates s- a little sorry go ahead well the, there i mean there, there certainly seems to be a bubbling fervor for something like a green new deal yeah and um, I know we'll, we have it on the agenda to speak more, to explore the Green New Deal, what that means a little bit more, uh, yeah. maybe even today, but in future episodes as well. Sure. Well, so. maybe let's go back to the debates for a minute. I don't know. What do you think about the, the format of these debates and how they're staged and everything? You said you've actually watched a lot of them. I've, like yeah. I said, I've watched like well, 10 I have something minutes meta to say about it if that's okay <laughs> and then i'll give you the the meta or i don't know if it's meta but more kind of um the governance of them the dnc's relationship to the format that apparently these candidates cannot go onto other platforms outside <clears throat> of what the dnc deems an appropriate debate wow format or they will lose their privilege to compete in the debates that's absolutely so, crazy so they they let's say Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and Andrew Yang couldn't come on to Panoptic podcasts and, you know, they must be just <laughs> right. clamoring to come on to Panoptic to talk to us. Right. Um, but they couldn't come on here and have a debate on our podcast because we are not, you know, a DNC sponsored organization. And if they did, then they, according to the DNC's rules would not be able to, um, 
compete in the uh, the normally um, scheduled debates. Yeah, and there is something fundamentally anti-democratic about oh, this yeah. that they're stifling real, uh, you know, deep conversation, conversations that many people want to hear about the policies, about yeah. what what are like, what is the difference between a uh, you know, an Elizabeth Warren uh, yeah. payroll tax versus a Bernie Sanders right, whatever right. wealth tax or whatever these like that those are very hard things to parse out. But we yeah. have there are ample opportunities in the age of technology to have these conversations in depth, long form, and the DNC is not letting it happen. Right, and that um, you know, and getting back to the the format of the debates, um, everything. I mean, I'm not going to say anything new here. It's really kind of the horse race <laughs> format. Um, you you get thirty seconds to you know get in a soundbite to and right. so, so basically you're in a position if you're going to make an impact you have to say something crazy. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you you can't like say something reasonable. You have to come up with something that has like Catchy. a kicker. Yeah. And you got to scream a little bit and wave your hands and hope that it sticks and it's risky because you take a big swing and you might accidentally hit the kid next to you in the face because you're not yeah. paying attention yeah, yeah yeah it's so it's it's so stupid <laughs> i don't it's think awful. anybody actually cares about what these stupid debates apart in terms of like what the actual performance than like a certain set of talking head insiders that are very much linked to a political to like the democratic party operatives um and to a, polit- a certain, like, you know, a, a professional kind of journalist class, talking head class, that somehow seem to comment on this and then just use a bunch of rote uh, kind of language tropes and rhetorical speech to, like, you know, who's who's electable and all this different crap. And, like, who cares about it? Like, like you said, it's, it's just absolutely stupid. Like, it's kind of it's kind of entertainment, but of the worst sort. <laughs> and you're right. Nobody can actually discuss anything in any way that's substantive. Yeah, it's it, it and the fact that crime. they're not it's allowed to, right? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the farce of it. Like, why right. the Democratic Party is is is, is a complete... they're shooting themselves in the foot. Yeah. Oh, but that, see, that's the thing. It's the it's funny how these you know how power corrupts. The Democratic Party has a bunch of insiders who have been corrupted by power. They're blind to their own, the the you know they're blind to the to how they're shooting themselves in the foot. By being unable to open up the party to new trends and new ways of thinking and new things, and they're so undemocratic, they don't want really information and, and dialogue to happen. Um, to me, this is crazy because I don't know. Does that apply? I, I wonder how that applies for the actual president once it's like down to one on one on one. I would be curious about how that applies once it's like you know the actual the primaries are over and you have a candidate. Um. Because, I mean, once you have the candidate, I guess they can go on anywhere and talk to anybody, right? Um, but I remember during during certain paying attention to the Colombian presidential debate, and these politicians would go and sit down for two-hour-long radio interviews where they're surrounded by six journalists, not asking softball catch you questions, but detailed questions about what, exactly what you were talking about right now. What does this mean? How are you going to implement it? What does it look like? Tell us, walk us through the details. What does this look like administratively? What does this look like in terms of taxes? And I think the, the questions, you're, what you just said is completely right. It'd be really useful for people to be able to sit down and understand. Uh, you know, I thought it was really stupid when 
Elizabeth Warren, I think she has bad political in- instincts. So I'll just lay that out there. I thought, you know, when they asked her, well, is this going to raise taxes on the middle class? Your Medicare for all program? She refused to say it's going to raise taxes on the middle class. Overall, your costs will go down. She would repeat it over and over again. And it's like, people aren't stupid. Just tell them that their taxes are going to go up, but overall their costs will go down. People are not stupid. But because you refuse and to say that, you look like a complete moron. Because your advisors say you can't ever say that taxes are going to go up because people won't vote for you. And it's like, people are... And it's, you know, to me, and that's what... That's Bernie, what the, Bernie has said the opposite, right? So, I mean, Bernie well, is honest. That's I think exactly that's what, what he I says. think that's he's breaking the mold because he realizes that this old style of politics is... A losing politics where we, yeah. where the Democratic Party is so afraid to say anything that they refuse to say things like your taxes will go up. Well, yeah, your taxes might go up, but if you're paying six hundred dollars in taxes for for healthcare as a middle class person as opposed to six thousand uh, for a private insurance, you know people can do the math pretty easily. You know, no one people aren't stupid, <laughs> but you're treating them like they're stupid because of this format, and you, it gets me very upset. So you, now <laughs> listeners are going to be like, "I thought that guy was reasonable. He just yells." Um, yeah. I do when it comes to this stuff, but I think you're right, Jason. Like the only places where I've seen this stuff discussed are like NPR shows, but not the NPR like mm. you know, like all things considered, but like. These kind of shows they play at two in the afternoon where they're like policy wonks and they invite some like professor from Berkeley who's an economics you know, professor who comes in and he's like, well, let me talk to you in detail about Warren's economic plan. Yeah. And no and one's l- listening l- to that. Yeah. But l- let me be clear. So, I mean, I've seen Warren, I've seen Andrew Yang and Bernie. They have showed up on podcasts and mm-hmm. given the long form that that's out there I mean, you can go, you can go into youtube and find those things but what hasn't happened is getting multiple candidates together oh. in the long form setting yeah. and yeah. then watching how that conversation plays out right and yeah. that is what i think is the crime that we are not allowed to see right. that no, outside of the that's dnc's all, that's also yep. a crime yeah. yeah well because they're not able to have real debates right they just have to have talking point debates and like nobody cares <laughs> and you're and probably yeah. the only people that watch are the insiders who care who have a stake and did this one thing work two percentage points up or down but at the end of the day like is that going to rally and mobilize a bunch of people who don't watch the debates anyway like you said who might you know who might be interested to vote if you've managed to somehow reach out to them and give them some information probably yeah. not before we get away from the election, yeah, there is what's happening uh, in Iran right now, which I think yeah. at least we should entertain the possibility that of a, of a you know pay attention to its timeliness. Mm-hmm. If you're listening to this and you're politically read, you've probably already seen this, but you know Trump made the comment about Obama uh, around the time of the like the infamous Syrian red line that it was election yeah. season and this was could have been a political move to stir up conflict so he could appear to be uh, an effective leader in, in a time of declining um, likability and we see trump doing the uh, making the same moves or at least uh, falling victim to his own criticism of obama several years ago so i think uh, that is something worth considering although i don't know if this iranian conflict will escalate to the point that many of us worried it might 
several weeks ago. I think uh, what's going to happen in Iraq <laughs> is more the concern than yeah. what's going to happen with um, Iran, especially after what happened a few days ago with when Iran, quote unquote, accidentally shot a plane out of the sky, commercial plane uh, airline out of the sky with Canadians and Iranians on it. Yeah. So now you have thousands of Iranians protesting the government yeah. and actually uh, not having the kind of negative reaction to the United States that you think they might. So there, 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 there are sects within Iran. There's not, um, a, yeah. um, a monolithic, uh, opinion of what is happening in the world there. So that's interesting at least. Yeah, I think what you just said, the key seems to me what's going to happen, what the repercussions of this long-term are, right? Because it seems to me that what's always been sort of the behind-the-scenes story has been how is it that our actions in these places and who we back up and support have long-term ramifications. Um, So having taken out someone, having assassinated you know, having decided to assassinate Soleimani in the way that the United States did, uh, what are the repercussions for the players on the ground? The political, const- you know, the constellation of political forces, long term, uh, everywhere from the Kurds to ISIS to, I mean, I'm I don't know anything about that, you know. I'm not. I don't. I haven't. I don't. But every time I hear about. Every time I hear of it by, about that stuff by people who know, this real story that's always interesting is what are those long-term repercussions in terms of the constellation of forces? Um, it seems like... Uh, I don't know. What do you think about that, Jason? We pull, Trump came into office. We pulled out of the nuclear agreement. We imposed heavy sanctions. And now we've killed one of their champion military leaders. And, you know, to be honest, I didn't know Soleimani's name until a few weeks ago but um it seems like there has to be some form of retaliation here perhaps the retaliation will come in ways that we you know in ways that are very much under the radar for a while right yeah because i mean iran has um and again this is the kind of stuff that will only come out in the news later or in books written about this stuff which is what iran starts to do and the machinery that it puts into place into into movement in places like iraq and other places where it has influence to to uh to but that's the thing and this see i don't know if anything changes because i think the u.s and iran have been at a proxy war for a long time now right and in places like yemen um, and at the same time they're cooperating against isis in places like iraq but the u.s i mean another way to look at it i really think is always which i would think is very useful to think about it is at the end of the day, Iran sees the U.S. as an enemy because it's it's a country that has that has continuously, for a long history, in, intervened in its affairs and currently has you know has its you could say its guns drawn and pointed at it. And Iran doesn't see itself as as an as a you know Iran sees itself as acting in its in its region and it sees the U.S. as an as a as a sort of uh, uh, the aggressive party in in this whole history. So, I mean, to me, I don't see how it's hard to get outside of that framework. Uh, they are probably thinking politically about long-term sustenance in, at the interior and their regional interests. And the U.S. is always going to be an enemy, right? Yeah. Well, so so they're a, a Shia-backed government, 
and um, in Iraq. So they have an interim government that is partially Sunni and Shia. But you know the Shia representatives, after what happened to Soleimani, they voted to remove U.S. military from Iraq. Yeah. Um, probably my understanding is nothing can really happen on this front, at least for a year, because it it is an interim government. They don't have much power to execute. And Mahdi, the previous uh, prime minister, he stepped out actually because of accusations of a Shia leaning bias. And meanwhile, the Sunni representatives, they didn't show up for this vote to end U.S. presence in Iraq, because especially after the death of Soleimani, who killed many Sunnis, they would prefer the U.S. to stay. So... You know, the thought is when the U.S. leaves, you have intersect conflict escalating and can be, um, you know, harbor further terrorism. Um, that wouldn't be good for the U.S. But then again, you know, I'm hearing from some previous colleagues from the military contracting world that ISIS is stronger than ever in Iraq. A lot of these terrorist organizations, uh, including like some of the Shia-backed uh, organizations, um, they have a half-life of about uh, two years so, cause, and that's mostly, you know, with or without aggressive U.S. foreign policy. My understanding is that they're just poorly managed. They're not, they're not well organized uh, groups. So they kind of their leadership structures fall apart. There's infighting. There are disagreements. So uh, every two years or so, on average, they fall apart. Only for the kind of radicals to reform organizations and grow to power. Uh, and then repeat. It's like a perpetual cycle. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. well, so that'll be, uh, I, I guess, my my main point there. My political concern is the timing of Trump's decision to kill Soleimani. And like we said, you know, uh, there are polls that show 10 to 15% of former Trump voters say they would vote for Andrew Yang or Bernie Sanders in November. Yeah. Um, Trump still has a plurality of support, but, you know, looking strong in a military conflict with Iran or uh, leading a, a more aggressive operation in Iraq that could maybe give him the edge he needs to get reelected, depending on what happens. I mean, I don't I don't know. I don't know. I think either way, I, mean, I don't know. I think I'm going to reserve judgment to an extent. It seems to me that the U.S. is a reckless actor with regards to Iran in general. But this is a particularly uh, reckless example, apart from maybe what the Obama administration did, where it started to actually try to implement diplomatic uh, ways of dealing with Iran. There is no way of pushing Iran to do something. There's a way of countering perhaps uh, certain elements of its foreign policy in the Middle East. There's no way of, of forcing Iran... Uh, in the long term, I think, to not act into what it sees its its regional interests, uh, while at the same time, um, without democrat, you know, without I think diplomatic a diplomatic framework. If you're if you're if Iran feels at the end of the day that the U.S. is interested in toppling it, it it's always gonna you know it's it's I think it strengthens hardliners in the country, you know, and to an extent. Uh, I'm not sure if that's not exactly what some of these policymakers who, you know, kind of crazy people like Bolton want, who are kind of hell-bent on, on some, on for whatever reason, going to war with Iran and toppling that government. Um, it seems to me that that uh, the only responsible action we've seen with regards to Iran and the, from the U.S. has been Obama's attempt to sort of open up a, a certain amount of diplomatic 
relations with a government that poses no real threat to the United States of America at the end of the day, except to its bases and, and military uh, elements in the Middle East, which is very far away from our country. It poses no real threat. Now we could talk about then like things like, you know, uh, does ISIS pose a threat and do other radical elements and how does that might be or tied to Iran, but Iran by itself does not, you know, does it, and then if you get into the Iran and Israel thing, then it's a whole different ball game, I think. But but even then, I yeah. think we're if we're really interested in long term stability and democratic politics in these regions, we have to rethink the way we do politics in the Middle East, and that means rethinking our relationship with with Israel, which is which is which is every day getting further away from being a sort of democratic state, um, a sort of model for for what we would want in the Middle East. Uh, but Al, that's a big conversation, <laughs> and that's yeah, all opinion well, because it's all opinion based on very secondhand readings and f- much much ignorance about the region. Yeah, I'm at the same level. I'll say uh, I think there are a, a lot of Israelis on the ground would agree with you about the state of the current government. Hmm. So, Interesting. So, um, I think it's more of um, a Netanyahu issue than um, yeah. Yeah. A, a total. Israeli issue, right? That's I mean, that's a, another can of worms that maybe yeah. we should or shouldn't. I don't know. I don't know. I would, have to, read, I would to. have to read some stuff to at least be able to have some kind of informed opinion. I mean, I have a a general opinion based of my by my again secondhand readings and kind of like looking at things from afar and just thinking that we're supporting a, you know a very undemocratic government that's that's been punishing Palestinians for a long, long time collectively for the acts of uh, several actors uh, and just bad policy overall in terms of moving forward to a real uh, solution for that conflict. We've been supporting this actor almost blindly, even as it becomes this sort of like very undemocratic and and damaging actor in the Middle East. Um, but that's a very yeah. complex issue because you're dealing with, with a history, a complex history. Uh I guess we could wrap up with a quick thing on what's going on in Australia, if you want. Or- yeah, it's uh, completely terrifying. I think what a week ago was 14.5 million acres on fire, and it's not even peak fire season yet. And this seems to be linked, at least in some way, to climate change. And how many other, how many animals have died it's like a billion now it's it's according to an article from the atlantic from today 18 million acres have burned um i'm not sure how much land that is but it's a lot (laughs) and last time i saw an estimate count serious estimates might be up in the belt one billion animal one billion individual animals uh jesus which is i mean that's it's hard for us to think about that's i mean i don't know i can't even that's a something that's really hard to wrap your head around it also means apparently you know there this fire might account for for extinction extinctions of several species not good no and what i learned about Prime Minister Scott Morrison, who's part of the opposition Labor Party, uh, apparently he took the recent election on a slim margin, and it was his campaign was largely funded by the coal industry, 
And his response to this crisis was to basically reaffirm his support for ex- exporters of coal. And he toured the coal mining communities. And then he went on vacation in Hawaii. And wow. I think uh, his PR representative was like, you know what, uh, Scott, this is this wasn't <laughs> a very good move. So he came back and now he's trying to make amends. But uh, it's kind of disgusting that yeah. that is. And I don't know if uh, like if this were happening in the States, if Trump's reaction would be much different. I, I guess not. Who knows to what extent that a level of denialism goes. I mean, this is a president in the United States that has been who him and his people in his administration have been doing everything to destroy any kind of of uh, regulation related to the climate and to get scientists to basically shut up about climate change. Um, there's a complete denialism uh, and, a, and an attempt to re to take us back to basically to re to to continue and grow uh, energy production related to oil, coal. Everything of of like that. Um, yeah. There's absolutely no no coming to terms with this at all from certain political factions. Uh, there's more, obviously, in the Democratic Party, and where there's different, where apparently, what's his name, Stairs, Stair, Steyer, Tom Steyer, Steyer's, you know, sort of running on that issue to an extent. Or maybe there was some other one. There was a. I guess, I guess he was former governor of Washington. He was running so, solely on that issue. So, in the Democratic Party, there's much more attention. Um, yeah. You know, and I. And you know where I stand on this. To me, this is the biggest issue of our time, and it's to me, it's the big, it's the large, it's the greatest threat humankind as a species has faced, and it's the greatest. Uh, obstacle that we will have to overcome to survive as a species and i don't think there's a one easy solution i think it's a i think it's war levels of mobilization of resources and knowledge uh to to reconfigure the way we do business the way we produce things distribute things consume things but also the way we organize land treat land um everything from the ground up uh but the key yeah. thing is going to be doing it democratically. The key thing is going to be doing it in a way uh, that's sustainable and marshalling other countries. Uh, I mean, in a, in a perverse way, sometimes I think this could be good for people, <laughs> for humanity, when they start realizing, holy shit, we have to start cooperating a little more. And perhaps we have to start rethinking about to what extent we want to let the market solely regulate global interactions. Um and to what extent we want to say, okay, markets can be a good thing, but they can't be the sole sort of guidance of of human systems. We can't set market priorities at the top of the list, uh, like GDP and things, as the way to measure, uh, as you as you and I have talked about, welfare. Uh, when ec- when exponential GDP growth uh, in an industrial capitalist system is linked to to destruction of ecological systems that are basic and essential for our survival and the survival of other creatures on this planet. I just don't see how we get around that problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, if the markets do play a role, they have to be guided towards new measures that go beyond GDP. Right. Right. Industrial and, policy uh, would have to would have to become would have to create those measures 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think, yeah, I think for us and our listeners, we should definitely uh, do some kind of series on the Green New Deal hmm. and, and, and really unpacking what that means, because the Green New Deal, you know, it's not just environmental policy like you've, you've repeated several times now. It's, it's comprehensive industrial policy that is yeah. based off the kind of, um, what did he call it, the kind of bold, persistent experimentation of yeah. FDR that right. encompass like housing policy and, and healthcare and uh, all sorts of things. Right. So, um, well, I, and there's an American tradition of it. I mean, the Tennessee Valley Authority, what, what was the Tennessee Valley Authority, right? It was a, it was an administrative framework for creating jobs, for building dams, for, or for reorganizing land, creating the park system, um, you know, the Appalachian trail, these things are all things that come from that era. Right. And they all have to do with, with, a, with, a mix of technocrats and politicians who sat down and started thinking, well, how do we organize resources, mobilize resources, and create administrative systems for administering these resources at the, a regional level of the United States? There were good things about it. There were bad things about it. There were mistakes made, um, all kinds of mistakes. But this isn't this isn't something we haven't faced. You could think of the world. You could think of World War II as another sort of massive. Uh, obstacle that we faced by innovating and by thinking about uh, by thinking hard about what we needed to do to do that. I don't. I sometimes that uh, metaphor is problematic because there were things about the way we fought World War II, given by necessity, that would be considered undemocratic. You know, when the government comes in and tells a CEO, "Hey, you have to hire union laborers." And the CEO says no, and they say, "Okay, well, you're fired, because we're the government and we're in wartime, and I can tell you to do that." Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's what you know. That's not what we're aiming at with the Green New Deal. We're aiming towards some framework where we can create new markets, create new frameworks for these markets, create a way to orient the players so that we can do things like really tangible things, build infrastructure that's green, build transportation infrastructure, re, re, rewild certain lands that we're going to need to rewild, reconfigure where we're growing things and how we're growing things to feed ourselves. Um, so that yeah. you might go into a... People think that it's that our, 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 our markets are, are, you know, when you walk into a giant, that this is how it's always been, that there's always been 50 types of cereals and everything has corn in it, corn syrup and all these different things, right? No, that's part of our industrial policy of, of the post-war era. And the way we've, and the way we have, uh, our industrial policy has been based on supporting a certain form of agriculture. It doesn't have to be that way. And that doesn't mean we have to get rid of every single, right, every single option for the consumer, Maybe maybe everything won't have corn in it, and there won't be fifty five different cereals. But maybe that'd be a good thing, <laughs> right? Yeah. Maybe there'll be ten cereals out there, or maybe there'll still be fifty five different cereals, but they will be a lot costlier because industrial policy will be about producing fresh foods and vegetables and making them readily available to, uh, and re and produced regionally at a, at a good costs, right? So that. So that then you go into a grocery store and they're completely reorganized in terms of space in re reacting to the new markets that have been produced. I don't know. I think the we could start innovating and thinking about rethinking markets. It's so hard for us to think outside the current framework and, and, and how it was artificially produced, 
right? Um, yeah. Through industrial policy in the post-World War II era uh, and how we can reconfigure it to be better than it was in many ways, more humane, more ecological, more inclusive, more democratic. Um, of course, it's going to be a, I think it's going to be a political battle no matter what. You have to convince people that this is a good thing. Especially because it, you know, if we go with a Green New Deal, if we try to pass something like that, it's it's not just direct climate change policy. So that might that might work in its favor, mm-hmm. uh, especially if like this bubbling fervor that you speak of is, is real. I think it is. Um, but there are going to be people who are like, no, you are smuggling, you're you're greenwashing this policy to smuggle in progressive policies that I hate. It's, right. you know, of it's course. socialist. Yeah. It's, um, and that's going to be an uphill battle as well. Yeah. Oh, uh, for sure. It's so, going to be a political battle because people who think like me are going to have to make the case. Yeah. Uh, these aren't, no, we aren't smuggling in progressive policies. We're implementing progressive policies and we're implementing policies that are about, uh, yes, they're about democratizing and changing capitalism. And yes, you're not going to like it. Some of you are not going to like it who have a specific ideological perspective or have stake in the system as it exists but we have to make the case at large to the to the majority of the populace that this will be good for the good for people in general more democratic will give people yeah. more agency in the day-to-day lives will create a more livable world to the future and will pass on a livable world to the world to their children will actually be will create frameworks for more meaningful lives not just in the sort of like superficial sense of don't worry you're not you're gonna be poor but you're gonna be able to like have all the time in the no more meaningful and more agency more access to knowledge more access to to uh to creating and managing your own life because because i always get really depressed when i talk to young people and ask them what they're planning to do because 90 percent of them seem to be going to business school and the other i don't know whatever and I'm like, well, what do you want to do? I don't know. I'm just going to business school. Really? Cause, that's cause, what young people are doing? That's what I, when I talk to young people, it seems like a lot of them are. And that's okay. I know that. But our industrial policy is such that the most in- intelligent people are going to Wall Street to crunch numbers, to find out how to make money off derivatives of people who want mortgages or some other crazy stuff like that. Or they are... What else are they doing? I don't know. They're going into governance. I guess some government, some of them, they're going into policy, some of them. Some of them are going to, some of them are going to big tech, right? Another big faction of our smartest students are going to big tech where they are doing interesting stuff, but they're working within a framework or a system in which they're only allowed to innovate so much. And their innovations are things like, here's a new app. Here's a new ride sharing app. Here's a new app for, you know, whatever. But we have an industrial policy system where we basically su- we support big agro, big oil, uh, uh, and, and a whole bunch of other sets you know, of things that we could discuss about in detail. Uh, and there's no people don't care about their jobs. They don't like them. You know, what if you yeah. gave what if you started really investing in people so that they could do things uh so that they could do things at a regional level and create their own businesses. What if you started investing in in, in creating markets for greening the greening our infrastructure so that people could go into trades and work in uh, in things like solar panels, work in things like 
transportation. You give engineers a new out when you create these markets because engineers are working in, if they're, what are engineers working in? You know, they might be working in the military industrial complex where a bunch of our money goes. And again, it's a huge part of industrial policy, uh, but they're not working in things like, they're not working in things like, uh, innovating at the level of infrastructure they're not working on on innovating at the level of how do we how do we come up with new ecosystem management frameworks right suddenly you create a whole new set of categories for people for things to do with their lives again i think we it's hard for to go in detail unless we're, we're talking about specifics but i think if we talked about those specifics the green new deal lays out a new a new horizon for uh for the future that is that very much at the level of what do you do with your life, right? Um, yeah. What do you do as an well, engineer? What do you do as a business person? What do you do as a creative person? And all these different things. Getting back to reducing climate warming specifically. So I think now China is the top emitter of carbon. U.S. is, sec- is second, except top when it comes to carbon emissions on a per capita basis. Yeah. Um, this is still very much a global problem. So if the U.S. all of a sudden cut carbon emissions to zero tomorrow, the world would still warm. So uh, the U.S. is, in many respects, kind of the face of what happens to you know what the world is going to do in the future. So there's a case to say, well, the U.S. needs to lead the the charge here. Yeah, it needs to take action. But I think there's also a need for some kind of coordinated response on this that yeah. goes goes beyond beyond the existing climate accords yeah i think you're right i mean i think once something if something like the green deal deal happens that has to include a component of cooperation with china where we stop thinking of our relationship to china the way it's framed oh china's stealing jobs china's stealing technology china's doing this china's devaluing its currency blah 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 china's a bad actor we might not like at the end of the day what china is as a political entity you know what i mean like i would want to live in china you know, I've seen, we were talking about, me and you were talking about, you were talking about a, a study and about Chinese firms and how how Chinese actors relate. And I, you know, I watched a documentary lately about a Fuyao uh, glass plant here in Dayton, Ohio, that was opened. Uh, and they were, and the Chinese management was pissed because the American workers were too slow. They're, they're, they don't think, do things as fast as their Chinese workers. So they took some of these U.S. workers to China to, to look and see how things are done in China. They begin the shift by, like, lining up and chanting some kind of song and, like, marching in place like they're about to, like, go to war. And then, and then they work for, like, 10 hours straight without, you know, re- things that no American wants to do. <laughs> right? Hmm. This is how China is. It's a, an authoritarian state that, that then the authoritarianism goes down all the way to its to its uh to its basic elements of how people work right uh, we have to we we might not like that we don't like i wouldn't want to live in that country and work on, in that system but we have to find a ways to cooperate with china china's not going to go away right we have to cooperate with China because China, at the end of the day, we're intricately, t- intricately tied with them, right? Our every single electronic device we have right now has Chinese components, Chinese manufactured components in it. Um, they depend on us as much as we depend on them. So if we reconfigure our markets, they have to reconfigure their markets, or we have to find ways to sync up our markets. Um, and then we have to do it in a way that goes beyond pure competition. Like, that's the hard thing. 
But we've done it before, and I always give you the example. We did it with Germany, and we did it with Japan. We gave them things for free. That's the most anti-capitalist thing you could have ever done. But we gave them capital, and we gave them technology. Yeah. Because of this hyper-dependency on China, they're very hard to strong-arm into doing things that we want them to do. Um, but that can very easily escalate into something that is not favorable to U.S. interests. I mean, even if you had all of... Often we find the world in a state where you have all of Europe and the United States sanctioning China for something, and they're like, huh, we don't care. <laughs> they keep doing what they do. Right, yeah. So, um, but again, they I, work I, I hope within, there, there would be diplomatic ways of doing this. But they work also, within our existing framework. Um, the pro, I guess one of the problems there is within the existing framework, China thinks of its only path of development as one of industrialization and bringing them a mass amounts of people into a middle class through through um through kind of uh large well here's where I'm not sure I have the right terminology but what is china at the end of the day other than a sort of centrally directed capitalist planning right where you have mass mm -hmm. state enterprises and other not maybe as big as state enterprises and other non-state enterprises operating in a competitive framework, but very much with a very direct industrial policy from the top down, which is about expanding, industrializing, growing uh, middle classes uh, in a very extreme fashion that has very little regard for things like um, you know the effect on the environment. Uh, when we change our, when we if we do something like the Green New Deal, I don't know what that hap what China does in response to that, but I think at some point we have to start cooperating with them and saying, this is what we're willing to give, if you're willing to give the solar in return, right? Um, this is what we're willing to do, in terms of maybe technology transfers, and changing some configuration of markets. If you're willing to do this, uh, I'm not sure. I don't know. I think it's a, it's a. This is where it gets really hard to discuss about things that are so technical, right? Yeah. Where you're going to have to have people sitting down who know, understand these economies inside and out, and are willing to think, figure out how you can think, uh, reconfigure them beyond purely thinking about these are, you know, we're in competition with them and they're bad actor. Because then you're never going to get them to cooperate with you. China's not going to care if you're telling if you're upset about it. It's, companies stealing technology because they understand at the end of the day that technology is central to being able to, to break into markets that they won't be able to break in otherwise. Uh, it's going to take them 30 years through research and development, or it could take them three, three years through, st through stealing technology. Right. Yeah. Let, let's uh, think about technology just for one more second, getting back to climate change. Um, I mean, I, I think there's a question of how far technocratic solutions can go I just don't see how we can begin to turn the tides without accepting the risks associated with nuclear, which is something that I, yeah. if I understand correctly, I, I think that has that's omitted from Bernie's Green New Deal, or I guess it would be um, uh, AOC's Green New Deal, whoever uh, drafted it. I don't believe it includes nuclear. Um, and from there, you know, heavily investing in like carbon sequestering technology, which really doesn't exist right now. And then in concert with the kind of systemic reorganization, some kind of industrial policy that prioritizes challenges rather than individual firms, I, I think um, 
Some of this you may be able to do by tightening controls on offshoring and imposing penalties on firms for bad behavior, but this could also generate economic consequences yeah. that we may not be able to deal with. And, you know, for a non-economist like me, the only obvious path forward, if we're serious about reversing the crisis, is to impose substantial costs on future generations by continuously blowing up our debt, hoping the dollar doesn't collapse along the way. Uh, I think uh, I think one way to reduce it from a, a technology standpoint, if we accept that technology has to be a large part of the solution, um, one way of lessening that cost is by accepting the risk associated with nuclear energy, especially because the risk has gone down quite a bit over the past few years. Um, there's less risk of a nuclear catastrophe, nuclear fallout. We know it works, and we know we can provide energy to entire cities if we um, build the right um, plans that w- that could buy us enough time to develop more sustainable energies less risky technologies um, down the line so that's something i think needs to be considered that isn't really thought about in in the right way right, yeah. right now again i think the technicalities are something we'd have to read about carefully because i think there's a lot of things you could do at the level of policy uh, to again, I think this would be at the end of the day, this would be have to be a, a sort of global cooperative enterprise where we think about at the end of the day, what this is about is about energy flows. It's about energy flows, it's about how do you configure a system where you can, in a way, distribute energy flows to people that need them in a way that's equitative, sustainable. Now, I think it's an empirical question at the end of the day how you do that. Right now, we have certain frameworks that we've relied on in the past, the markets, and certain frames of governance. They don't work. They just don't work. They don't work, and they're leading us to to inferno. We have to come up with frames that work. What does that mean? Does that mean reconfiguring global trade policy so that you can't do things like offshoring if you're a firm, but you still have certain modicums of, of exchange of goods and services? What does it mean? How do you do that? You know, right now, um, you have the wealth. You have the wealth to fund these programs. Now, if you were going to do old school social democratic uh, taxation schemes to kind of bring that money back to the United States and use it to fund these programs, what happens, though, is, is, is difficult to, I think, I don't understand technically. You know, what happens if you say, you know, companies, we, we pass certain laws so that companies, if they have to, you know, they can't have overseas uh, uh, offices, they have to have their offices if they're American registered companies in the United States, they have to pay taxes in the United States, they can't have, you know, people can't offshore money, the money is there. Billionaires have tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of money. You know, there's trillions of dollars sitting out there, and just sitting out there being completely stagnant. There is... The, the funding, the money is there. But what happens, of course, when you try to reel that money in, the consequences are manifold. At the end of the day, though, when our system has become so... When our system and our distribution of flows and capital has become so unbalanced that on the one hand, we are on the verge of inferno, and on the other hand, we have a, an immense amount of capital in a very few hands, right? So if Jeff Bezos has over $100 billion. This tells you something. 
to tell this tells you more than the fact that he's an intelligent guy. It tells you that our system is one where a, one individual can amass a hundred billion dollars. But that hundred billion dollars is value that has been created at a whole set of levels, starting with the miner in Bolivia who pulled out some lift, you know, who pulled out uh, some lithium on an iPhone that went to china where it was put together by a foxconn worker where it was then shipped on a container to the netherlands where it was then shipped to the united states where it was then shipped to a store in 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 california where it was sold at a point of purchase there's a lot of people's work and labor that goes into that uh, or you know or into the box that eventually ends up at somebody's house an amazon box uh there's we have a bad distribution of energy and a bad distribution of capital you know, I don't think it's too radical to think about how we have to re, reno, we have to innovate to have a more equitative distribution of both of those things. With the primary dimension is how do we make those work so that our distribution of energy flows is sustainable and actually works for humanity? I mean, that should be our, our horizon point, and we have to be super innovative for it, and we have to sit down with countries and think about rethink global trade, rethink global finance, rethink what banks do, rethink the government frameworks, and try to create frameworks, especially if the United States, you have to be the leader in doing that in a democratic way, because China's not going to do it, right? Unless there's some kind of revolution or something in China, China's an authoritarian state. Yeah. The China's not going to do that. The United States... They're an, they an authoritarian state who also invests billions of dollars in green technology. For sure. How, yeah. how I could be wrong, I believe they actually invest quite a bit more than the U.S. currently. Yeah. Um, but they're a logical but, actor you know, to, to an extent, to, right? Yeah, and mm. uh, they also have far more coal-producing uh, plants, or uh, coal-using coal plants yeah. than uh, the U.S. as well. So, yeah. And I uh, think it's maybe, we, you know, what we need to do, Jason, is because we're getting longer in our reflections, when we do do an episode, <laughs> is we really have to think through some of the proposals at a deep, detailed level and think whether they're viable. Um, I think it's important to ask ourselves those questions. And what does... What is a Green New Deal, for instance? Does it... What, what kind of policies does it implement that change the very rules of the game, the very paradigms under which we act? Do they? Do they go far enough? Do they really change anything? Do they th or do they not? Do they like? Are they pure pie in the sky? Um, because I think what you brought up, a lot of people say, "Well, how are you going to pay for this?" Well, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how you're going to pay for this. The world's going to be on fire if you don't find a solution. You have to find a way to control energy flows. In, this, in the way we produce energy flows, the way we distribute energy flows. And if the market is not the framework for that, if the market as it exists does not work towards that, then it does. the whole question of how you pay for it is a is a mute point. It's like asking, I don't know, I have, I have a hard time coming up with a metaphor for that right now, but you see what I'm getting at. Like, it's a, it's a silly question. Um, how are you going to pay for it with an existing framework of how we treat dollars and the relationship between dollars and production of energy? Well, yeah, you're not going to pay for it. <laughs> maybe you can't, but then maybe we need to find new frameworks for for organizing the distribution of flows uh, at a worldwide level, because that's what it is about, right? We're pushing energy, we're we're in a sense producing energy to feed systems, and the side effects of that production of the energy is these climate effects, which are going to have, which are going to turn into these feedback loops, which are going to be. Ultimate, possibly, if this, if some of the models are right, catastrophic for life. Um, yep. And I don't know if you know 
if people are really going to be behind saying, okay, a few very rich people might be able to escape to Mars, but we're all, all the rest of us are going to be doomed. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a good policy. Like, we need to think beyond sort of like, well, we can always escape. Like, well, we have a planet now that actually is livable. Maybe we should try to do something about making it livable. You, you mentioned that World War II was this kind of crisis point that enabled uh, innovative industrial policymaking. And I wonder if climate change reaches a point and we'll, you know, you and I both will argue that we've already come upon that crisis point with respect to climate change, but it is certainly not the popular perception that that is the case. So at what point does it become sufficiently or perceived sufficiently catastrophic that you'll see this groundswell of support for something that is, um, maybe not radical, but uh, maybe completely the opposite of radical because the only logical thing to do would be to throw all of your resources at stopping the, the inferno that you, you speak of. Well, I I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I think we look at what's going on in California has been a small scale model of what's going on in Australia, but with what's going on in Australia, I can't, I wouldn't, I would be surprised if people are not starting to change their minds as we speak and seeing what's going on in Australia and saying, Holy shit, excuse my language. Maybe we, it's time to start rethinking some of what we were being told uh, about climate change and how we can, how capable are our current institutional frameworks for actually reacting for it. Um, yeah. And do we need to start listening to the supposed crazy people like Bernie Sanders who are, who are dismissed by in mainstream media uh, discussions as sort of like, you know, free things for everybody. Free college, free blah, 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 right? Well, hmm. you know, I, I hate to say it, but if you're the only car- candidate who is thinking about this threat at the scale at which it seems to demand according to to scientific models, um, then you're the, actually the only serious person in the room. I don't know. This, You know you know how I feel about it. A lot of people are going to not... I think a lot of people don't share that perspective, but I think a lot of people are starting to change their minds as we speak. And I don't know, I think, I hope it doesn't come down to the fact to, to us having to live through some Australia-like event for people yeah. in this country to start saying, well, maybe we need to start rethinking a lot of things. Um, I hope it happens before that. But we're living through this climate crisis now. We're living through it. I mean, uh, I've, been to, I've been to different place, places in the world where you see this climate crisis very much playing, playing itself out in real time. Um, you know, recently and earlier this year, I was in Colombia, and I went and we did a lot of traveling around the country. And we, we went to some places. Uh, you know, we heard a lot of stories about what's happening in uh, different areas where people are literally living. You know, this stuff, this crisis in real time. Um, I, I mean, there's several examples I could give you, but. There's an area of, of glacier, glaciers in the center of the country that is really important for climate, for the management of, of temperature and climate in that region. And these these um, glaciers, which are in very high volcanoes, because this is the Andes, are probably going to be gone in the next 10 years or something like that, right? So this is, and this is in, in this part of the world, uh, which is a big coffee-growing region, the specific climate that has been created over eons um, with the influence of, voca- of volcanic 
uh, of the the influence of, vol- of volcanoes and what it's done for the soil and the richness of the soil, but also the way that that these uh, glaciers have managed a specific microclimate uh, that gives you a, 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 a an incredible sort of atmosphere for growing or environment for growing coffee. Once those glaciers are gone, you know, like desertification, destruction of, you know, fires, forest fires, and uh, bio, biological loss of biological diversity, the the effects of which we are, I think it's hard for the everyday person who is not thinking about this to start thinking about, right? What happens when we lose biological diversity to our seeds, to our food growing systems, to our water, to all these things that we depend on that we don't think about, right? Yeah. Well, I wonder if there are different ways of communicating about the crisis that would create more, that would galvanize more interest yeah. and more um, energy. Yeah. And I, I, I think it's clear that no one has really cracked the, the code for that. Yeah. But, and th- there's going to be a different message for different populations. Yeah. Um, something like a green new deal is going to speak to, I mean, look at, look at who is, look at Bernie Sanders polling results. You know, that yeah. is the, that is the population of individuals who are interested in something like a green new deal. Um, it might be that there has to be other kinds of targeted messages for different populations to get that kind of support yeah. that um, maybe aren't so um, transparent that are maybe a little bit more strategic <laughs> getting back yeah. to Habermas. Yeah. Uh, Perhaps I think you're right. I mean, there is definitely going to be some element of strategy, which people are still figuring out, I think. But communication is going to be important. I mean, how do you talk about things? We're having that problem right now, and I think you keep bringing it up in a, in a way it's productive. How do you talk about something that's very complex and where the existing rules make it hard to think about or to tackle? Because you say, well, that sounds interesting, but how are you going to, how are you going to pay for that without, you know, without going into massive debt? Which is how the, you know, if you think about how it, how it plays out in Main Street conversations, this is exactly how it plays out. Well, we get that climate change is a problem, but what you're talking about is $13 trillion expenditure over 10 years. Where does that money come from? What does that do to inflation? Blah, 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 blah. We talk within a specific framework of rules. Also, the, the, the goals are very vague. What is the timeline? Like, how long do we ten need to years. do this? The timeline you is know. a 10-year timeline. Well, I, I mean, for a, a policy. Yeah. Like, so what is the goal of, of policy X? Yeah. How long is it going to atta- uh, take to achieve these outcomes? Right. How long do I have to give you more money than I want to to achieve these outcomes? And then I want assurance that it's going to go back to the way things were before. And that's, like, not a message that we can really give people. It's more... You know, it's got to be vague. It's got to be um, experimental because we don't know really how the climate works. We don't know what it's going to take to put things in order. And then we're also, like, when you tack on these kind of in, in the tradition of FDR's New Deal, these like experimental policies, and like in a way, you're kind of throwing things at a wall to see what creates constructive change. Some some may work and some may not. But you need the the space to do that. Um, but that's not going to be very comforting. It's not going to feel very secure for people 
who are resistant to change. Yeah. And this change management problem, when you're dealing like at the national scale, yeah. it's not really like you don't have four or five stakeholder groups who you can survey and figure out <laughs> right. what they need. And yeah. um, it's it's going to be really challenging. Yeah. Um, no, so so maybe right. we can go back definitely right. to the to th- into history and figure out what is it that made FDR's plan so um, effective, and how did he manage to resonate his logic with um, this narrative with with enough people to yeah. get to get these policies passed? And, yeah, I mean, um, I think you're. I think you're. I think you talked. You touched upon a key element, which is. How do you communicate this to people who are going to think in those frameworks, which you just mentioned? Am I going to have to give you more money? Why? And at the end of the day, is everything going to go back to what I like? Or is this some kind of ground change? And what does that mean for me? Um, you have to talk to those people, but you also have to talk to people who are not, people who are not motivated to vote, people who are outside of traditional voters, people who are already part of the voters but are at different levels who are, might be more susceptible to thinking about what change might bring um, and the good and the goods that it could bring to, to the everyday person. Uh, I think that language is really hard to do. And I think, again, one way to do it is the framing of industrial policy and saying, look, this isn't nothing new. We did it already. We did it after World War II. Did it after World War II, where we created an industrial policy based. This wasn't just a natural act of the market. We created a framework for the market to act, which was based on mass consumption, suburbanization, car-centered suburbanization, a certain power given to unions, high taxation of corporations, but with the government, with policy, with industrial growth, focused on. The industries of car manufacturing, oil production, and in, uh, other industrial agents, other industrial ele- elements like steel production and things like that. This created strong middle class jobs. This created strong union middle class jobs with good retirement and benefits, uh, a strong working class element. But it was not perfect. First of all, for its environmental side effects. Second of all, with the way it was uh, premised on mass consumption. Uh, it was premised on an industrialized form of ag- agricultural production um, with certain subsidies. It links up to foreign policy and trade policy in the way we looked at places like Latin America and Africa and Asia as, as places for supplying raw materials and what that did to those nations. Um and there's a bunch of other things where you can take it. But then you can say, industrial policy, we can reconfigure industrial policy. We can, instead of, inst- you know, we created through policy, through things like the highway, uh, we basically built the highway system, right? Because the government decided to build a highway system. We can build whatever infrastructural system we want and create industrial and economic growth through that create middle-class playing jobs, create an outlet for engineers, everything from workers to engineers, um, and for firms to act within that framework, right? This doesn't have to be some kind of centralized planning. This can be, say, hey, firms, we're going to, you know, we're going to create infrastructure for greeting every building in the country, bringing solar and wind, uh, changing completely to solar and wind if that's possible, 
right? And all the other elements that creating high-speed rail, creating new urban urban frameworks, um, more new regional forms of production for foods and other and other things that we consume. Um, maybe not necessarily based on the same levels of mass consumption by changing the way we think about economic growth. There's a lot of things, but I think that framing of industrial policy can be one to start saying, hey, the point here is to create more livable worlds for people at the everyday level of experience um, and to channel our industrial policy to to do that in a way that's sustainable for the planet. you might like those, you, t- you might like those lives a lot better when you live in a in a European like city where p- things are walkable and there's really good public transportation and you're working less and your job is more meaningful because maybe you're working in some way tied to something very tangible which might be something like greening a landscape or building and maintaining ma- uh, high speed inf- high speed transportation infrastructure or name something else, right? Innovating to create green energy in some way, shape, or form. Um, if, if you target these middle-class uh, laborers who feel disenfranchised by the promises of Donald Trump and um, beyond that, perhaps um, there's enough support there to get something like this passed in this uh, current environment. Yeah. So, you know, maybe a Trump is a blessing I th- to the Well, more, I think uh, you, per- you capture a bunch of those voters because you tell them, hey, this, this Trump policy, which is not industrial policy, which is about Trump goes out and makes a deal here and a deal there, this is not going to change anything. The global dynamics of, indus- of capitalism are not going to change. Yeah. Firms are going to continue to do what they're doing. They're going to continue to globalize supply chains. They're going to continue to use non-union labor as much as they can. They're going to continue to move uh, uh, labor-intensive activities overseas where they can find cheaper labor. But if you, but if you, uh, but if you create an industrial policy that, like post-World War II policy, was based on using union labor and to produce what we produced in the past, but something different, not car-centered suburbanization, and based on mass consumption, but something else, maybe redensification of the city uh, based on a different level of consumption, on our regional consumptions of goods and services, um, with uh, shorter work spans for people in general to produce less energy, um, and with good, robust support for for social systems like medical medical care, child care. Uh, and so on down the line, so that so that individual businesses don't have to pay for that stuff. Maybe you'll have less billionaires and less millionaires, but you'll have better overall uh, outcomes for the for the everyday person. Uh, I don't know. There's, I think this is, I think this is something that good... sells to the majority of people in the uh, in the country. Hey, there's a lot of good research that shows when you take healthcare off the backs of companies that they can operate a lot more freely. They can focus on other operations that, uh, you know, it's, it's a huge administrative burden. It's very costly to yeah. manage the healthcare of your employees. Yeah. So, um, I mean, we have, a, we have yeah. the, we have, in the industrialized world, we pay the most, we get the least. I mean, to me, it's a, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a transparent case of, of interests doing everything they can to distort the conversation towards what's actually pragmatic, right? Yeah. We don't have to have... I mean, there's a lot of ways we can go, but at the end of the day, 
our system is completely dysfunctional. And uh, finding ways, again, to innovate there and to create, at the end of the day, I think medical, medical, access to medical care is a human right. People need it. It's not like they want it, right? It's not like whether you could buy, uh, whether you can, whether you deserve to buy salmon or something. This is different, right? Yeah. So you, people need access to it and they don't need to be going broke over it. Uh that seems. I think pe- most people think that's common sense. I fall uh, into the John Rawls camp, where I something like uh, education, um, you know, clean water, food, um, yeah, right, healthcare. I tend to think of those things as human rights. Right, it, right. It gets logistically challenging when you think of well, someone has to perform those services, so you have to have sufficient incentives so they do a good job. So they want to be in those positions and they do a good job performing them. Yeah. So that's the logistics uh, piece that, that can get challenging when you start characterizing those things as human rights. But I think necessary. Um, yeah, but I mean, if we look yeah. at the history of this, I mean, every other country manages to do it fine. With a most fine, fine to some extent. I mean, depending on what procedure you need, you, you could be waiting for three months. Uh, I mean, we could look at that. We could look at the specific case, but the thing is, we we have to make a decision as a as a as a society. Are we interested in the one percent case, or are we interested in the general cases, right? And can we create robust systems in which the majority of cases are being uh, supplied as 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 often as possible, as fast as possible, can we mobilize that technology that we have access to to try to cut out as much of the red tape as possible? How do you do that? That's difficult, and you're right, it's an empirical case. But the current market system we have does not do that. Sure, some people who have a lot of money can have, you know, really fantastic, deluxe medical care. But the flip side of that is everybody else has terrible, you know, medical care. I mean, I... I have, I'm privileged because I have uh, insurance through my university, uh, but I barely use it because, other than the basics, because I'm, I never want to walk into a hospital because I don't know what I'm going to walk out with in terms of a bill. Yep. You know what I mean? I just don't. <laughs> and I try never to walk into a hospital if I can avoid it. It's like cops in, in Latin America, where you don't want to deal with cops because you're more worried about what they're going to do um, than if they're going to help you. That's what medical care is in the United States. People stay away from the doctor because they don't know what they're going to walk out with. Yeah. There there have been some experimental clinics that do not accept insurance. They basically operate outside the system, and doctors come in and they get paid directly for the service. It's, it's like on a commission basis. But they actually prefer it because, as you said, there's a lot less red tape. There's a lot less bureaucracy. Um, and the patient gets to know exactly what the cost is before they receive the service and that's you know when you go to any hospital you know being in an ambulance can cost you thousands and thousands of dollars and pay you know patients don't even know that before they you know call 911 because they can't get off the floor and they need yeah. help um well i mean there's a lot this is one of those like you said it's a very difficult logistical issue but when I see, you know, on social media, and I'm gonna pre, pre, I'm gonna preview this by saying, I don't know to what extent this is true. But when I see in social media someone posting a bill saying, "Hey, this was this was for delivering a child at a hospital of one hundred and twenty thousand dollars," 
how can that cost $120,000? You know what yeah. I mean? Like something is deeply wrong with that system. And when, that's, and when it's that wrong, you cannot have a market system doing it because nobody can gauge real cost of anything. So there's some, there are a set there, and this cre- must create all kinds of perverse incentives. You can only imagine. Yeah. You need to find a way to sort of shield medical care from being a normal market. It can never be a normal market because the demand and supply can never be a supply of demand in the, in the sense of like an, uh, of a whim or a, or a small necessity that I could have or could not have. Or, you know what I mean? It's just you, if you need medical service, you need it, and you are subject to whatever cost you have to pay. And oh, someone, has to, to, someone has to front that cost. Extend this to the pharmaceutical industry yeah. and how, you know, uh, for, forget the costs, but how many drugs that we need are not being developed because they're not profitable. Yeah. Um, you know, antibiotic resistance is a massively um, under-talked-about issue that is also an existential threat right there with climate change to human existence and companies are not developing new antibiotics even though it'd be possible for them to do it but they don't because they're very hard to develop and then they're not profitable in the long run yeah right i mean this is where you this is where you need research and development at the public level to create things that people need and then put put them into motion so that people can access them in other countries uh for instance people can uh the government can can uh supply or firms can produce generic certain types of drugs that you can in the united states well so, that's largely why it's so much more expensive in the united states well i mean because the pharmaceuticals have significantly reduced costs overseas totally. and then they increase the cost by 300 percent for americans well we're subsidizing world use of of pharmaceuticals basically the united states subsidizes the use of pharmaceuticals for other countries uh again totally it's it's about flows of energy and flows of distribution of goods and services in a way that we have to start thinking about beyond the ideology the ideology of the market knows best because if we remain trapped in this ideology we can never really be serious about solving these issues. When it breaks down to the left and the right, say, when it breaks down to this divide of the right saying, well, markets always know better, get the government out of the way, blah, 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 you've already fallen into the terrain of pure ideology, as far as I'm concerned. And so you really have to be able to discuss things pragmatically and create robust methods for holding the people who make these decisions accountable. And for holding them accountable to making these decisions in a way that reduces bureaucracy and maximizes efficiency. It creates frameworks for producing these things that people need. Um, yeah. Because at the end of the day, like, like we, like you were just saying, it's with pharmaceuticals, it's another, it's another one of those things where it should, where what it makes sense doesn't seem to be at all be what, what exists. Let's uh let's plant a flag here because I think we're over two hours now. Is, <laughs> so much for the short reflection. I think the intention was for this to be forty five minutes, and I I wanted to end on something interesting I found on leadership member exchange theory and uh, how this ties back to how um, our your, the subordinates or the followers of a leader interact with that leader, how they feel loyal and committed to that leader. And also how, 
much uh, they are willing to voice their ideas in a certain environment. There's some interesting research on this that kind of ties back to some of the discussions on like the Hawthorne studies that we've mm-hmm. discussed and uh, Chris Voss on uh, some change man or uh, negotiation techniques for achieving certain outcomes so there's like an interesting mix of strategy and change management all sorts of things here i think i'm going to table that for whenever we have another <laughs> yeah, opportunity I because we'll i think come back to that. we'll be talking <coughs> for another 30 40 minutes about this so um to be continued uh, we should have known that we can't do 45 minutes jason i mean every phone call, call we have it goes over two hours Especially when we start talking about these issues, because you know they're passion projects of mine, and I just start ranting, and me and you start going back and forth before we know two hours have gone by. <laughs> well, it works. Uh, we can uh, we're able to make a whole podcast out of that, I and mean, we, we've known this about ourselves for years now. So right. it's about time we um, we turned it into oh, something no. productive, right? Yeah, and especially if uh, to any listener who's still listening at this point, <laughs> props to you. You are awesome. You are our core listener. Yeah. <laughs> one listener. listener. You are our core listener, the one willing to sit through two hours of our BS. Oh, God. Uh, thank you for listening. All right, well, thanks for helping me miss the, the debate. Yeah, Um I'm sorry about that, but I'm sure it's posted to YouTube by now, so you can yeah. get into bed and watch it as you go to sleep. Oh, it's probably not a good idea. You probably won't sleep if you watch it. <laughs> I might sit down and just watch like the opening statements or whatever, which are yeah. the most the only interesting part anyway. Well, let me know how it is. I don't know if I'm going to watch it. And I'm sure you won't it, miss much. If uh, you're still with us, uh, and if you haven't, left us a rating or a review that would be uh, much appreciated um any uh anything like that uh, especially on apple or spotify that you can do for us will help other listeners discover the podcast and uh that's just uh, super helpful so uh, we really appreciate it and uh, if you like these uh, reflections pieces uh feel free to submit ideas for other reflections other episodes where we can react to certain things in the news or whatever and try to tie them back to the core themes of the podcast and uh, have an interesting conversation about it. So, um, yeah, thanks so much. Thank you, uh, listener. And, and Jason, you, I think you said everything we needed to say at the end of this. So I hope you, uh, get some rest. Do you enjoy what you're hearing on Panoptic Pod? Is the application of philosophy, media theory, and communications theory to everyday practical contexts something that you find interesting or useful? If so, please consider supporting our podcast through Patreon at patreon.com slash panopticpod. You can also access our Patreon through our website, panopticpod.com. There you can also drop us a line or a comment. Jason and I are always looking for ways to improve this podcast. Your support and comments will help us in that endeavor.